90% of startups fail and a good professional diligence effort can drop that to 50%. This is according to the research that's out there. A lot of angel investors who are trying this asset class for the first time don't know what a good due diligence effort looks like. Perhaps they're investing in sectors they don't know well. So one of the things that I thought was really intriguing about being a part of an angel network and leading that community was seeing investors learn from other investors. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk, the podcast for financially focused technology employees. Are you working for equity? Do you have questions on how your career and money work together? Then welcome. Every week, we discuss strategies and tactics for how to grow your career, build wealth, and reach your financial and lifestyle goals. Hi, welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. I'm your host, Christopher Nelson. And today, we want to talk about something that's really important for technology employees, which is your venture portfolio. Many of us, as we get into technology, we're earning equity, and we're building wealth, we start investing back into tech. But there's so many ways to do it. And like anything else in your portfolio, you need to be disciplined. I'm excited to introduce everybody today to Claire England. Claire England is an investing partner with GPG Ventures here in Texas. And she also spent a good portion of her career working with a lot of limited partners like yourselves, investing in venture, helping people putting together a thesis for their portfolio. We're excited to learn that from her today. And we're also going to hear about her story of how she started in public relations and then went into the VC world to be the partner that she is today. Excited to introduce you to Claire. Let's get into the conversation right now. Welcome to Tech Careers and Money Talk. Excited that you joined us here today. I'm excited to introduce everybody to Claire England. Claire is an investment partner at GPG Ventures and a former Kaufman Fellow. She's been in venture for over 10 years and started her career in public relations, which I think is so interesting because many people have this concept that you either have to be in product management, you have to be a CEO to get into venture, but Claire's here to buck that trend and tell us how it worked for her. Yeah, Welcome. thank you so much. Thanks so much, Christopher. It's great to be here. And I'm uh, excited to dig into some portfolio theory, but first we'll we'll talk about um, my background a little bit. So yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a unique bird when it comes to venture because not only do I come from a PR and marketing background, but I spent the first decade of my career in social impact nonprofits. Wow. And I've only come across, a, I don't know, three or four other VCs who spent uh, some of their career in nonprofits. So this is a, definitely a unique path. Actually, a lot of the people I know who have broken into VC did so through uh, first investment banking, mm, yes. uh, getting a finance degree or an MBA. Uh, it's certainly come a lot, become a lot more common in recent years for people to break into VC after having been with a startup and having some success in, in entrepreneurship. So I uh, love seeing people who come from a product background or CEO background because they know what that entrepreneurship and founder experience is like. But for yourself, I, I think it's also important to understand that marketing, uh, PR for 
startup companies and for venture capital firms is critical in their growth as well. So it seems like your trajectory, you came in uh, with having some PR experience and then you started working for a startup yourself. Was that sort of the the gateway to getting into venture? I, I did. Yes, that's correct. I spent uh, a couple of years running client accounts for a social media services startup and caught the tech bug, um, caught the entrepreneurship bug and uh, really started exploring the entrepreneur ecosystem here in Austin, uh, which, you know, in the 2010, 2011 was still still developing, but certainly growing. Um, it's, it's become a whole nother beast now. It's so yes. much larger and exciting here. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, that opportunity to leave nonprofits and work with a, a for-profit startup uh, really catalyzed my interest in innovation. And mm. um, what's fascinating, though, back to the nonprofits is how similar, you know, there really are some parallels between nonprofits mm. and startups. Both have to, at least for early stage startups, have to work with uh, fewer resources, with limited resources. Both nonprofits and startups uh, have to fundraise. That's right. Not all of them, obviously, on the startup side will will fundraise, but a lot of them need to, to, to really grow. And then startup leaders, founders, and nonprofit leaders are very mission-driven. So That's uh, right. you know, they're goal-oriented and mission-driven. So it's uh, it's been interesting to me. I, I know I don't fit the mold for a lot of VCs, but I actually think that this background in uh, social impact and PR and marketing is is kind of an advantage for me as a VC. Uh, I bring a different uh, perspective, and I think it's valuable to have different perspectives in VC. One hundred percent. And I think the fascinating thing that you highlight too is that when you have experiences and you're able to tie the results in those experiences and the commonalities in those experiences to then where you want to move into. And I tell people this when they want to do career pivots all the time, you can then start mapping things out that are similar. And I would actually state that from your experience, if you're in a nonprofit and you're familiar with a uh, you know, let's say a, you need to raise funds or or die, then when you come into a startup environment where people are focused on the technology, the build, and they need that kind of support, you can you can play an instrumental role in helping whether it's a startup or whether it's a VC really get traction quickly. Indeed, and and beyond that, VC and and I would posit startups as well in a lot of ways are a people business, a relationship business. And That's right. uh, having spent so many years in fundraising and media relations and marketing, those are all very relationship driven. So there's something to be said for VCs who have high EQ and mm. can build effective relationships with founders and know how to to support uh, startup leaders and and their fellow investors. So I think all of that is is very important for for VCs or, and any type of investor, not just professional VCs. And it's something that Kaufman Fellows believes very strongly in is high EQ and developing the fellows as leaders for the future of venture capital and 
I can say I'm not a former Kaufman fellow because we're, <laughs> we're fellows for life. They, once we're in the program, we're in. You're um, in. So even though, even though I did graduate from the two-year program in 2018, I'm still very active in the Kaufman Fellows Network. And it's incredibly valuable for those of us who are, who are part of it. Yeah, walk us through real quick. You know, give a highlight to people listening as as to what that is, and mm -hmm. um, and then also what, like for yourself, where was that in the development of your career, and what did it mean to go through that program and and now continue to participate? So Kaufman Fellows is in the vein of like the the Henry Crown Fellows, the Eisenhower Fellows. These are these are top notch fellowships for people in a, in a certain career or wishing to have a certain focus. In the case of Kaufman Fellows, uh, I think it's most akin to an MBA for venture capital. It's a two-year program. Uh, we meet in person during those two years with our classmates uh, for modules quarterly. And it is leadership development. It's developing us as uh, an investor and helping us become the best version of ourselves professionally and personally that we can. And uh, that sounds a little foo-foo, but it, <laughs> it works. And um, I think it's, it's incredibly valuable. And there's a reason why it's become known as, as a top program for venture capitalists. There are 880 of us worldwide in, I think, now 58 countries. Wow. Uh, so it's an, a really incredible network. And the class before mine in uh, 2015, they started allowing institutional LPs into the program. So that has just crystallized even more the value of the program because we're surrounded not just by other GPs from, from VC funds, but also LPs, institutional LP investors from whom we can learn. And every class, uh, at least during my time, also had people from 500 startups and Endeavor, so entrepreneur support organizations too. So having that broad swath of people from the ecosystem is really valuable. Um, yeah, I, I didn't expect to make dear friends in a VC program, but I did. And Kaufman Fellows is, is worth being a part of for those who are considering it. Now, as your career was was growing inside of the venture capital world, was it this experience that really helped round you out and fill in some of those those other areas for you to make you the complete VC, if you would? I don't think any of us is ever a complete VC. We're always aspiring to be better um, and always learning or we're not doing a good job. But um Yes, I think Kaufman Fellows was a big piece of that. But when I was nominated to Kaufman Fellows, I was leading Central Texas Angel Network, which is, I it was a top 10 to 15 most active angel group in the country at the time when I took over the reins. And uh, during my tenure, the board and I took it to number one in the country in terms of both deals funded and dollars invested. Wow. So that experience, I think, alongside my Kaufman Fellows uh time really crystallized my um, my knowledge base in investing both with angel investing and VC. And I think that if you're a really good angel investor and spend a lot of time thinking about and, and digging into due diligence with your angel investing, you can be just as good or better than most VCs. That's a very interesting perspective. What I'm hearing you say is when you start at that micro level and, you know, the level of work, the level of unknowns that you need to do to 
be placing small amounts of capital in many times over. It's really those repetitions that then get you into that mindset of how you can continue to uh, grow in that in that profession. Exactly, and not only that, but you, you one tends to think differently about one's investing and 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 the thesis when you're writing a check from your own bank account versus writing writing a check that is from LPs who've invested in your fund. So right. I, there's a bit of a different mindset with angel investing. But yeah, it, back to your original question, I think a combination of learning from very experienced investors when I was running the, the LP community, the Angel Network and Kaufman Fellows, and then when I stepped down from leading the Angel Network in 2019, I had a ch chance to join Portfolia as a fund manager. And I've been a partner in two funds at Portfolia, which has really, uh, that helped me up-level my skill set as well. And Trish Costello is not just the founding CEO of uh, Portfolio, but she was the founding CEO of Kaufman Fellows. And I've learned so much from her as well and from my fellow partners at portfolio wow it sounds like it sounds like then once you once you got in and you really started to figure out where you could play in the vc world that the learning never stopped the opportunities never stopped and and now here you are at i mean it was the move to um gpg cpg gpg GPG. yeah was was very recent it was just a little over a month ago, and uh, it was it was time for me to go back to, to full-time work. I've been a part-time fund manager and doing a lot of uh, consulting over the last four years, uh, including being executive in residence for Techstars Tulsa and being a partner with Lojas, which is an impact advisory firm. Uh, I, I wore a, a number of different hats and loved every minute of it, but having the opportunity to go uh, full energy, put all of my energy into one role and uh, working with just a stellar team at GPG Ventures. I'm very excited to be opening their Austin office. They're a firm that's based in Dallas with an office in Houston. So I believe we may be the first, perhaps the only firm in Texas to VC firm. Now there are right. others who have multiple offices around the state, including Capital Factory, but I believe that we're the first VC firm to have three offices in uh, major tech, major uh, Texas cities. And what kind of investments will you be placing in that firm? We are focused 75% on healthcare and mm. about 25% on general tech, B2B, SaaS, uh, AI, ML, um, enterprise. On the healthcare side of things, we do just about everything but healthcare services. So we've invested in therapeutics, diagnostics, medical devices, pharma is under the therapeutic side, consumer health, and health IT, health tech. And there's a lot of digital health in Austin. So it's, oh, yes. it's and with the medical school being here, uh, we still have, as compared to Boston or San Diego or even Houston, we have a relatively nascent healthcare startup community, but uh, it's growing fast and there's a lot of exciting, there are a lot of exciting things happening here. And what, what is your, what is your thesis for your fund? Is it going to be a new fund you're opening or you're in office supporting of some, some broader funds? I'm building out the Austin office to support uh, the opportunities that we have as a firm, firm-wide. 
So uh, we're, we operate different than a lot of other VC firms in that we don't have a fund out of which we primarily invest. We have a mm. couple of opportunity funds which are for follow-on opportunities. But uh, when we first go into a deal, we partners do due diligence together, make an investing decision together, and we all co-invest together, uh, usually with our families. And mm. then we share out that deal to our LP network. And uh, before I joined, uh, in between the Houston and Dallas offices, that's a network of 650 unique LPs, high net worths and family offices, uh, 500 of whom are based mostly in Dallas and Houston. So I'm now adding my network of high net worth and you know accredited investors and family offices to the GPG network. And so each time we do a deal, we create an S. PV, which is yeah. a special purpose vehicle to invest together with our LPs in a, in that opportunity. So we're giving individual accredited investors and family offices a chance to see deals that they might not otherwise see, especially when we're opening up uh, room in the follow-on rounds for our portfolio companies. That's really exciting because I, I know being an LP that that then gives the opportunity to get into some some first look situations that that you have and be able to then bring capital alongside essentially larger players so yeah. that, just wanted to finish that thought because I, I like that model too because then incentives are aligned whenever you get the opportunity to go in first with with gps there's there's a lot of incentives aligned there so that's i didn't know that that's great indeed yeah and the traditional model in VC is to create a fund, raise from LPs, both high net worth, family offices, and institutional, and then invest out of that fund. But I personally know uh, a number of high net worth and family office LPs who like to do direct investing. And mm -hmm. so instead of having that be kind of a secondary opportunity, uh, almost an afterthought to a fund, GPG makes that our, our primary focus and the fund is the secondary. It's, it's kind of flipping the, the script a little bit on VC in that respect. Well, it is. And I, I think, you know, and now I'm getting real excited to talk about portfolio structure and those things as well, because I, you know, as, as a very active LP myself, what I really enjoy about that is direct investments can be much more intimate, number one. Number two, they can also be much more impactful. I also enjoy too, like going into what I consider general VC funds, more blind funds where you're putting the dollars forward and then the, the, you know, the GPs are essentially managing that where, where here I can actually have, if I have a healthcare thesis in my family, or if I have AI ML thesis that I really want to go invest heavily, making the direct investment gets me a lot closer to what I'm trying to accomplish in the building of my portfolio. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. And, and I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. I think it, it's valuable for LPs to have a differentiated strategy across VC, uh, to pick some, some great GPs who you believe in as an LP and invest in them and, and let them use their expertise and, and find great deals to invest your capital out of their funds. And then also if you have uh, the inclination to do individual deals. Um, you know, the other thing I've heard from, from LPs is some just frankly don't have time to do a lot of individual direct investing. 
And so a model like GPGs, like our my new firm, where we are the lead investors and we invite LPs to join us in that opportunity means that we're the ones who will be following up with with the founder and checking in and make sure things are going well. And if we have a board seat or an observer seat, we'll be paying close attention to how that company is doing. So we're operating as a professional VC in that capacity, but inviting our LPs to come alongside us in that journey and joining that SPV with us. Right, right. And that and that to me is the value because as you stated, right, we want a very rich and diverse portfolio. So this to me is another, when you're thinking about the VC you know, section of your portfolio, now you have an offering where you can have the, the direct investment alongside a mature and experienced operating partner that's driving that. And so it's it's definitely you know, less overhead, 100%. Indeed. A little bit, uh, perhaps a little bit easier than straight up angel investing on one's own. (laughs) 100%. Yes, 100%. And hopefully a little bit better de-risked as well. So let's... Let's talk a little bit. I'd love to understand as we're sort of putting a bow on this, you know, career section where you are now. What, you know, what do you think some people get wrong, LPs get wrong about venture investing or seed investing? When it comes to individual angel investing, I'll I'll put that one, I'll address that one first before I go into the fun discussion. Uh, LPs who are doing direct angel investing, uh, and especially when they're doing it on their own, I think can be a mistake because uh, you don't know what you don't know. And many angel investors will see failures up front and decide this asset class isn't for them. And perhaps they're just investing in some deals that a friend or a neighbor has brought to them or a family member. 90% of startups fail. And a good diligence a good professional diligence effort can drop that to 50%. This is according Mm. to the research that's out there. A lot of angel investors who are trying this asset class for the first time don't know what a good due diligence effort looks like. Perhaps they're uh, investing in sectors they don't know well. So one of the things that... Uh, I thought was really intriguing about being a part of an angel network and leading that community was seeing investors learn from other investors. Mm. And I think that when you have a chance to, you know, portfolio theory is, is all about diversifying one's portfolio. And we tend to, as, as business leaders invest in what we know, but if we're going to really have a diverse portfolio, we need to invest beyond that how in the world can we possibly invest in what we don't know unless we surround ourselves with people who know those sectors? That's right. We're we're going to make poor investment decisions otherwise. So I think that that number one is don't go it alone Mm. as an angel investor. I think that's one of the top pieces of advice I can give any potential, any LP looking at this, at this asset class. And on the fund side, Make sure you've done a really thorough job of diligencing that fund manager. Look at their look at their history and uh, make sure that you're you're seeing really accurate uh, data around their past portfolio performance and what that yes. looks like. 
Well, Benjamin Franklin, due diligence is the mother of luck. So <laughs> um, I I love that because that's that's something that I see and try and help people understand all the time. And this is why this podcast is here, so we can have conversations around uh, career equity you make and the money that you invest. It's so important mm -hmm. to understand that a community of like-minded individuals is critical in being successful as an investor. And that stat that you rolled out, and I, I, I think that is compelling because the more you do due diligence, while the broader stats, the 90% failure, those are people that are taking on family money, family and friends, putting in their own money. But when you look broader, you need to then understand when you're writing the check, if you have a portfolio of 10 companies and then half of them succeed, half of them fail, well, then you're, you're probably going to come away with some upside in that scenario. Exactly. And we'll, we'll get, I have lots of thoughts on portfolio theory. Yes. We'll get into that shortly, I'm sure. Well, we're, no, we're going to get into that right now. So we're awesome. going to take a little break right now and we're going to be right back with Claire England. Okay. And welcome back. We're here with Claire England and we're excited in the second half of the show. We really want to talk about portfolio theory. We want to also talk about Claire and I met at a conference and she was just started, you know, we just started jamming a little bit on portfolio theory. And then she started sharing with me how seed investors need to develop their own portfolio thesis. Mm -hmm. And I said, please stop. Don't tell me anymore. I want to record this and I want to share it with the listeners of Tech Careers and Money Talk, because I think they're going to get so much value from it. So why don't you kick us off and let's get into this conversation of developing a thesis for your seed investing portfolio. Thanks, Christopher. So this was actually um, a project that I developed when I was in Kauffman Fellows. So as part of the two-year program, uh, and here's another reason why I liken it to a mini MBA, we have to do a thesis project. Mm. Uh, and in my case, I uh, created a whole white paper and slides around why creating an angel investing thesis is important. Um, so it's called a framework for angel investing thesis development. And a few things about why this this is critical. First of all, um, VCs write a thesis for their fund. This is this is part and parcel super important for venture capitalists to have a thesis for how they plan to go about doing their investing. And and uh, some people will also call it portfolio construction, but essentially it's your investing thesis. And I posit that it is as important for an angel investor or an individual LP to develop their investing thesis as it is for a VC. For starters, it's really critical to help focus one's investing efforts. If you know exactly how and where and why you want to be doing this, this asset class, it can help you having a thesis can help you conserve your time and energy. Mm. Um, at least two thirds of angels work full time. You know, I think there's a misconception out there that a lot of accredited investors are the ultra wealthy, and that's not the case. Uh, the The minimum barrier to entry for being an accredited investor is a 200k salary as an individual, or 300k if you're counting a spouse, or 
a million dollars in assets, not including one's primary home. Uh, so a lot of people qualify as accredited inv investors and don't even realize it. Another reason why I think it's important is a thesis, remembering one's thesis when you're doing the angel investing can help you make more clear-headed decisions when you're faced with uncertainty. When you're trying to make those decisions around what are the, you know, is this really the company I want to invest in? Um, there's a lot of uncertainty around startups and knowing your thesis and embracing that can help you make more clear-headed decisions. Okay. Cause I was, it sounds like then as you write out your thesis, the, you would go and you would find some quiet time away from investing away from investments. And you write out your thesis for your seed investing portfolio. And yeah. I, I, I do. And so, and so I'd like to try and bring this to life a little bit because I sure. was literally talking to a friend the other day who, you know, had, had one of his seed investments, um, you know, pop, and, and he was getting bought out and it was a great thing. And so for his particular thesis, he went, wrote it out and he leveraged it to be this, this reminder when you get swept up in the emotion, because I think sometimes like this is where these types of artifacts help us remove the emotion from the decision and remind ourselves of when, you know, before we had all this dopamine swimming around in our brain because of a great meeting and great ideas of really where we want to place our dollars. Yes. And it and, sounds and like that's what it is. Exactly. And interestingly, you're, you're actually starting down the road of developing the thesis by saying it's for seed investments, because mm. that's one piece of of developing your your investing thesis is what stage are you only going to do seed or do you want to seek out some later stage opportunities do you plan to do follow-on rounds in your existing portfolio companies or are you just going to invest one and done will mm. you use your pro rata in future future opportunities when uh when that company goes back to raise their series a or their series b and beyond it also includes planning for the pace and sizing of your investments. So, I think one of the one of the things that um, that individual investors need to be thinking about is this is a high risk asset class. Some people call it gambling, um, and I, I think that that's certainly there are some parallels there. But it to avoid it seeming too much like gambling, it needs more forethought. So providing mm. yourself a roadmap for how you want to build a portfolio and, and helping you just planning that out, like you said, getting away from the investments, stepping away from all the, all the distractions and composing this. And we can get into kind of some of the, the thought process around how you can do this in a minute if you'd like, but yeah, in my experience, uh, historically, less than 15% of angels I surveyed had a fully developed thesis. I think that there's a lot of challenges there. And this is exactly why I want to share all of this information with people. I want to be able to to bring people like you here because what I found, so you know, I started a, a private equity company that helps people, helps technology employees diversify into real estate, commercial real estate, private equity, because there was literally a void in their portfolio. Mm -hmm. And from the hundreds of conversations I've had with accredited LPs, 
I would say 80% of technology employees, their portfolio looks like this. 30%, 40% or 50% is in a single tech stock, which is the company that they work for. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you're going to have maybe uh, 40% is just in broad market funds. The rest is in the market. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to have the rest is going to be in VC. And their entire portfolio does not have a purpose or direction other than grow, right? That when I ask people, well, what's your, what do you want this to do? I just want it to grow. And I think, I think people need to, and, and especially technology employees that put so much time and effort in their work, you know, spend so much time developing their careers. They need to understand the playbook of how you take a, take back, take a step back and put some thought into this. And so when you think about somebody's, you know, personal net worth, and this is one of the things that I, I try to get people to think like, what do you, what do you, do you know of, of investors or targets? Cause we're not, we're not trying to give advice here, people. We're just trying to understand what's, what's theoretical, what, what we're seeing out there in the market. Is there a allocation that you generally speaking, see, you know, people who manage their portfolio with maturity allocating to venture? Oh my goodness, that's a tough one because uh, you know we had we had I had two hundred LPs in my uh, in in Central Texas Angel Network, and th- that meant when it, when founders would ask me, well, what are the LPs like? That's two hundred different ways of doing investing. That's so right. every every person has to approach this from their own financial situation and determine what's best for them. Now. That said, there are some good broad guidelines around developing an investing thesis, and some of these are rooted in portfolio theory and portfolio diversification. Historically, uh, and this is probably 10, 20 years ago, this would, would have been true if, if not longer ago. Historically, one could invest in 10 startups and expect five of those to fail or not return much of the original investment and then expect a few to return one to two X, maybe three X, but you're looking for that one that would be the, the 10 X plus that would balance the portfolio and help you return better than you would in the public markets or real estate. Now that has changed. And now experts are saying that, to really diversify in this asset class, you need to have um, a portfolio of 20 to 30 startups. Hmm. Now, if you're balancing that with fund investments, then you can think about how that looks as well. But right. um, but I think, you know, first of all, there's most of the people who explore the venture asset class are folks who already have their tech stocks and public market stocks, like you mentioned. And then their next move is to go into real estate. So whether they do some commercial real estate investing, multifamily or single family home investing, uh, that is typically the next step. And then the venture asset class is the next one. The advice I give uh, individual investors who are considering getting into this asset class is this is not the place to risk your nest egg. It's high risk, potentially very high reward, but keep your nest egg in something more secure and know that this is a longer term play. Um, The average time to exit in startups 
has over the last few years has been seven to 10 years. Mm. Right now, that's even getting longer because of the lack of IPOs. Um, so mm. this is this is a longer term, high risk category, but conversely, high yield and high reward. There's a right. reason why the private markets are known for for making people wealthier. It is an opportunity for that. It really is. And you you brought up something that I'm curious if you have insight into, but you know as as we spoke as I spoke the other day, you know there's 732 unicorns, right? So uh, private companies valuations over a billion dollars. I'm, you know, I track this because I look at, at the, at the equity compensation side, uh, you know, for the listeners here. And what I'm finding is that more companies are trading privately on secondary markets, and that is actually growing in size and scope. Are you seeing that from your side as well? Yes, I think that's, ac- that's absolutely accurate. Um, I think that's a growing space in part because of where the markets are now. And that's part of why I, I pushed back gently earlier when I said you've already started developing a thesis when you start calling it a seed thesis. Because right. I think that it does make sense to consider secondary markets and later stage opportunities when one is is developing a, a venture asset class thesis. I just think, too, it's so important that people get versed in venture in private equity in general. I I read this very telling article by The Atlantic the other day that now 20% of the public market has gone private, you know, versus it was 4% in like 2004. But now here we are coming on 2024. And you think about the all the private equity companies that are taking public companies off the market, going private, and they're talking about that market cap. We're talking about understanding how to do due diligence, thinking about uh, privately traded secondary markets. All of these are going to be important tools that people have in their investing toolbox to be able to build wealth, you know, going going into the next 10 or 15 years. Indeed. And, and to that point, I think um, one of the things that's um, well, we have an example in our own backyard. Dell went private after being right? public for many years. Um, so I, I think if you'd like, um, one of the things we can dive into is how specifically to go about developing one's investing thesis for venture asset class. Um, because I do have some guidelines on what that looks like. And when when you can find that time to set aside and kind of have some quiet where there aren't any distractions, uh, I think this could be a, a great thing for, for listeners to do. I think that's great. Let's get into that, Claire. Sure. So for starters, uh, I think it's a really good idea to outline your personal values, your strengths, mm. your expertise, your interests, your passions. What do you care about? And conversely, what do you not care about? Because that will guide uh, a lot of your future decisions about your investing thesis. That in itself can be a more lengthy exercise, but I think we, we all have a pretty good sense of our own strengths and expertise, our interests and our passions. So listing those out, going ahead and putting them down on paper or on a whiteboard, and then starting to think about your, your appetite for risk. So identifying what your appetite for risk is can help you determine how comfortable you are 
for certain valuations and terms. And for those who aren't familiar with the venture asset class, one of the things I would do before even developing this investing thesis is read the book Venture Deals, uh, maybe even do the course. It's a free course. Uh, the book is written by um, Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson, two angel investors turned professional VCs who are incredible teachers. And uh, they work with Techstars and Kaufman Fellows to create this free course that, that is offered usually twice a year um, online, and you can kind of do it at your own pace. So I would start there because I can start getting into terms that can sound confusing if folks <laughs> haven't, haven't dug into what a term sheet looks like That's right. and what the valuation or a cap looks like. Um, for instance, I, I know a, a family office investor who was new to the asset class and was so excited about an opportunity that uh, she decided to, even against uh, the advice of the angels around her, she decided to go in on a, a deal that, that did not have a valuation cap. And she got burned. Mm. Those are the kind of things that if you have a thesis and you've spent some time thinking about deal terms and valuations and caps, you can, you can have your own guideline for what you're comfortable with and what is going to leave you burned later on. Similarly, I would think about follow on rounds. So if you're going to have a seed thesis and only seed, and that's the only stage at which you're going to invest, then you're going to have to be really disciplined about saying no and letting founders know upfront when you invest that that's the sole, that that's the single time you're going to invest and you're not worried about about your pro rata about maintaining that in future rounds you're just a one and done there's nothing wrong with that as a thesis one of the most fascinating events i held a lunch and learn event at ctan was when i invited investors with different uh, approaches to building their portfolio construction and their investing thesis. And each one of the three had a different plan for how they handle follow-on rounds. One never did follow-on rounds. Another one followed in, followed on to just about every, every deal that they thought was doing well. And the third one only followed on when an institutional investor was leading the next round and was mm. de-risking it to an extent by doing that. Interesting. How different do you think those three portfolios were in terms of, of performance? I'm thinking that there was probably a shift of return level of 30 or 40%. Zero. Zero. Oh, no wow. difference. There was no difference. Hmm. I mean, it was minuscule minuscule difference in the portfolio success and unrealized and realized for these three mm. portfolio, the, the ways in which they were handling follow-on opportunities into their existing investments. And the reason was because all three of them had a thesis and they stuck to it. They knew mm. what they wanted to do. And they stuck to it. And so as you set a thesis, a thesis, would have some tuning, right? As you go through, would it have oh, yeah, some absolutely. level of? So of, I'm, I'm only halfway through the, the, ah. the development. You're you're getting to the last point. So okay, got it. Um, the next point would be to spend some time thinking about your mindset. Are you more diligence focused or are you opportunistic? Meaning, 
Are you more focused on the metrics of, of market size and revenue and go-to-market strategy, or are you more of a gut-feel investor? Mm. Or are you somewhere in between? And how are you going to think through diligence versus your gut feeling? How are you going to balance those? How much diligence do you want to do? How much do you think is important? This is also an, a, a, something to, to keep in mind when once you've developed this thesis, you can actually apply this to how you think about investing in funds as an LP. So you can talk to the, the GP you're thinking about investing in and ask them, are they more diligence oriented or more opportunistic? They might right. have partners with different approaches. You know, there, there, are, there are very successful VCs out there who go almost exclusively on gut. And then there are very successful VCs who go by metrics and stats and data. So it can be, and, and sometimes those VCs, those GPs are on the same team and they balance each other. So um, another point that I think is really important is analyzing your deal flow. So mm. um, recognizing market trends. So back to the, the personal values, you've already determined your strengths, your expertise, your interests, your passion. That will tell you the sectors you want to invest in. And then spending time recognizing mar market trends in those sectors and exploring new sectors is part of diversifying that portfolio. And ideally, as you're developing this thesis, you're not just thinking about the, the sector you know. If you can surround yourself by other with other good investors, other people who are exploring this asset class or already know it, then you can invest alongside them, knowing that they know their sector, mm. and you can diversify more into other sectors that way. So, putting all of your baskets in B two B, all of excuse me, all of your investments in one basket, B two B SaaS, right, in one sector not going to be as diverse of a portfolio as, as would I would be ideal. Do you want to expand into healthcare or climate tech or CPG? What do you want to avoid? What do you know you're not going to be any good at? And to your point, finally, a thesis is never static. Mm -hmm. This is something that you should reevaluate at least annually because you, you grow and you learn as an investor, if you're doing it right. And as a result, you'll find that there are things in your thesis that you'll want to revise or expand upon. And I'm sure there's there's room in there, right? You're, you're incorporating your lessons learned all the time. Exactly. Of you're constantly reevaluating as you learn lessons, as you realize, oh, gosh, I didn't do a thorough enough background check on this on this founder. I didn't mm. work my network to find out the pros and cons of this person as a leader or the, the founder told me that the market was this size and I didn't check to make sure it really was. Mm. And so are there guidelines when you think about the 20 or 30 investments, as far as what, what kind of diversification that you would want across, let's say industries or, you know, let's say channel models, B2B versus B2C. Here again, it has to do with your comfort level. Hmm. A lot of, um, a lot of investors I know in Austin in particular, historically have been more comfortable with B2B. 
Um, B2C is, is a tough space, but then a lot of the Bay Area investors are much more comfortable with B2C. So it depends largely on your own knowledge and expertise. What is your business background? Mm. Um, where do you think you can have the most impact with your angel investments? One of the reasons why people get involved in this asset class is it's one of the only ones where you can really be hands-on and have a chance to be a resource for the founders in your portfolio. I want to pivot the conversation a little bit. I think I think we walked through the um, thesis building, but let's let's touch base on this. Where so many people that I know think that once they stop working full time in tech in a corporate role, whether that be for a startup, whether it be for a public company, that they they no longer have a opportunity in tech when. I think they couldn't be more wrong that in this ecosystem and growing these amazing companies, supporting different founders, there's a myriad of roles that are available to them. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing out there where you could take somebody with deep industry experience and they can, they can uh, work in this ecosystem? Oh, I would want to immediately introduce them to some of the accelerator leaders around town because the, you know, whether it's, whether it's uh, Capital Factory or Techstars or Sputnik, ATX, um, for Austin locals, there are accelerators in, in most significant startup communities all around the U.S. and internationally. So uh, as long as you're in a, in a community that has some level of startup support, then you can find an accelerator and plug in and become a mentor. Now, I think it's important for those who have never been a mentor to startups to realize that this is not going to be a paid role and you should never ask for payment uh, as a mentor until you've developed a really deep relationship with that founder. And usually it'll be the founder who asks you if you would join them as an advisor and they offer you some, some stock. So it's giving back. You've been successful in your career. By no means does that mean your career is over. You have a chance to teach founders to support startup leaders in your community and beyond how and why they can be successful. And if you have specific experience, say you're, you spent your career in marketing or, or um, product development, you can bring a level of expertise to the table that is unique and that a lot of companies could really use. Right. I mean, you could be a, a SaaS buyer on the business side who, yep. you know, has been structuring those particular types of deals and can give tons of insight there yeah. as well. And I know there's opportunities. You, you mentioned mentorship, uh, advisors. I know we talked about board seats. There's even, you know, the opportunity to you consult in, in different scenarios as well, depending mm -hmm. on how deep your expertise goes. Yeah, certainly. And I, although I do think that uh, a lot of people go into consulting in the startup ecosystem thinking there's a lot of money to be had, and most early stage startups don't have a lot to hire consultants. So uh, right. if you're looking to do consulting with startups, I would encourage you to, to look at the companies that are really well-funded, maybe Series B or Series A and beyond. But if, if you're, whether you're retired or taking a sabbatical and exploring your next thing, uh, getting involved in the venture asset class is a great way to explore that next thing, first of all. Or if you're retired or on 
just have had your successes and we're not of the age where we're going to call it retirement. We're going to call it sabbatical, permanent sabbatical. Um, the, another thing you can, you can do is, is bring that expertise to bear as an independent board member. Mm-hmm. Independent meaning you don't have an investment or a stake in that company and you're bringing an independent mindset to that company's board. You know, one of the things that I think was really uh, interesting about going back to that portfolio metrics lunch and learn I had at CTAN was one of the uh, the investors spoke about how his winners were the ones where he had a board seat and wrote a big check. His losers were the ones where he was passive, either not on the board, not even a board observer, and wrote a much smaller investment. So mm. his takeaway was... The diversified portfolio is important, but for him, success happened when he was investing with passion and all in. Yes. So, you know, that that's that's a I think a, an important lesson for for thesis development. Another one is is we all learn from our failures more than we do from our wins. And when you're thinking about uh, getting involved with startups, know that those failed investments are an opportunity for a lesson learned. So what what was the reason behind that failed investment? Was it lack of due diligence on your part? Were you too emotionally involved in funding cash burn? Were you perhaps believing in the fallacy of first mover advantage? Second mover sometimes, actually often, does better than first mover. So doing a post-mortem on your failures and reincorporating those back into your investment thesis is part of uh, thinking about how you want to be involved in the ecosystem because you, when you learn from your failures as an investor, just like when founders learn about their from their failures as a founder, uh, we all become stronger in the ecosystem. Become stronger. I couldn't agree more because that's it's the process of of failures evolving into lessons learned, and I think they mm-hmm. can only do that when you reflect on them. Otherwise, otherwise they just stay as failures. You have to process them into a lesson learning. You have to write that script. What does that look like? What was the lesson? What was the takeaway? And then as investors, the more we do that and we fold that into our investing knowledge base, translate that into our new updated investment thesis, that means that we continue to take risk out of our portfolio and we continue to put you know, more wins on the board. And- yeah, and one one last thought I'll add is that um, one thing that I think that is perhaps easier to forget than it should be is that when we're investing in startups and investing in this asset class, we're we're investing in people, mm-hmm. and founders need support. They don't just need a check; they need advice and mentoring, and they need us to also ask how they're doing. Um, founder mental health is a real thing. And uh, found being a CEO founder, whether solo or co-founder, is a lonely experience. And we as investors can help make that a better experience by being, um, we don't have to be rah, rah, rah cheerleaders. We can mm-hmm. be authentic and meet that founder with emotional integrity and, and support them as we're pushing them to do better. Such an important point to call out. And, and especially I think for some of us who, you know, I, I transitioned from corporate roles into entrepreneurship and I understand that entrepreneurship 
is a lonely journey. And, and especially if you are leading an, a startup company and people expect so much of you aren't taking it from you. We need to take our experiences that we had at these hyper growth companies, coach them, guide them, be that shoulder for them. And, and I think to your point, Claire, what I've come to understand is that, you know, we can be in that positive mode. We can be drive on the gear shift. We can be going backward in reverse, but sometimes just letting the car idle in neutral is exactly where we need to be. I'll also add one one other thing when when we're thinking about building our our investing thesis, and that is, I'm going to bring up what some people will consider an elephant in the room, but I think this is an important uh, consideration, and that is diversity: diversity of person, diversity of sector, diversity of stage. The research is very very clear that the best performing companies are those that are led by gender diverse teams and ethnically diverse teams. And if we as investors make a concerted effort to find and get to know a vast plethora of different types of founders, we are much more likely to have a successful, um, a successful portfolio and the returns that we want on that portfolio. I, I couldn't agree more on that either is that, you know, what I've seen as well is the diverse teams, diversity of ideas and people that come together, uh, you know, help navigate through all these different situations because of all the different contexts that you can bring. And ultimately what sits on the other side of a company and what you're building is what customer base and that customer base is going to be the same thing. It's going to be diverse. Many of these companies want to go sell not just here in the United States, they want to go sell all over the world. And, yeah. and so we have to all come together and originate with that same, you know, diversity of ideas. I also like the bringing in people who have worked in different sectors. I know for myself being in, you know, more public tech than bringing in people who were, let's say in the military and had that experience for a number of years and brings in, in that diversification of idea. Or for myself, I was at very large corporation. Then I started going into uh, pre IPO startups. And so you went from, from big to small. And, and so I would always understand where we're headed, where we're going. That was one of the dimensions that I was able to bring to the team, all those different ideas, people, thoughts, places, you know, make for a stronger outcome. Yeah. And, and the stats are there to, to back that up. Um, for instance, at Portfolio and Portfolio, by the way, exists to activate women as LPs in the VC asset class, uh, because, uh, women historically don't, don't tend to think of, of angel investing in VC as something where they should, they should put their money. But, Women control uh, more than half the wealth in this country now, and uh, they also control the purse strings for um, eighty percent of the buying decisions in the home, and that's only increasing. Hmm. So, one of the things that I think uh, is just you know proof to the point I was making around diversity and and your support for it is that our best performing fund by far at Portfolio is the one that is focused on investing in black. Latino, Latina, and LGBTQIA plus founders and or companies that are addressing those communities. Mm. And that fund is uh, unrealized IRR, of course, but uh, it's performing in better than the top quartile of funds. Wow. 
That's amazing. There's something to be said for for seeking out um, diversity of person and idea and sector and all of that. I think socioeconomic diversity is important too. It truly is. Well, I think that you and I, Claire, could jam for hours more, but unfortunately, we do have to put a bow on this at some point. We always set it up with what we call the fire round, where I'm going to ask you five questions. Just give me some crisp answers here. What would be the worst career advice that you ever received? Worst career advice? Oh, my goodness. I don't tend to think in worsts. Oh, wow. I don't know if I can come up with a crisp one. Stay in nonprofits? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> did, did, somebody, did somebody tell you that at some point? Yeah. They, they, they thought that nonprofits were my future, and I thought so too at one point. But it turns out it, I didn't think of it as bad advice at the time. It turns out that wasn't where I was supposed to be. Well, and I think sometimes well-intentioned mentors don't want us to get hurt when they see us taking a risk. But mm -hmm. I would say to that person, they didn't know what you were about to become. So anyway, I good Neither one. one of us knew what I was capable of at the time. <laughs> In fairness. So how do you keep learning? How do you not? <laughs> In this day and age, right? Yeah. So I read a lot, podcasts. I stay abreast of the news. One of the most important ways I keep learning is by seeing startups, you know, I have a chance to deep dive and due diligence into sectors I, I have very little knowledge of, but I learn in that experience. And that's one of the reasons why I love this asset class so much is I have a chance to see cutting edge technology and cutting edge solutions in healthcare and, and other sectors that I would not otherwise be aware of or learn about. That's great. What do you do to recharge? How do you how do you get away from it all? Uh, cuddle with my pug. Oh, <laughs> pug pug no. cuddling's a thing. That's yeah, a thing. pug cuddling is a thing. No, I love to travel, especially internationally, and uh, that for some people that probably doesn't sound like a recharge opportunity, but I it it just it gets me. It's having a chance to see new places and experience. Uh, new experiences and, and go to a place where I don't know the language. That's, that's the goal. I love it. Yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. What advice would you give your younger self starting to work in VC? I don't know if this is advice from starting to work in VC or just advice younger self generally, but, um, stop listening to the negative inner voice, the critical mm. voice. I should have got rid of that a long time ago, a long time sooner than I, than I did. And I, I think that this is something, I don't know if men are challenged by this. I know a lot of women, high performing uh, CEOs and top leaders who deal with the negative self-talk. And uh, that's something that none of us need. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, I, I know I can struggle with it too. Being my own worst critic is, mm -hmm. is, is brutal. 100%. It's a conscious decision to let that go. And I think it's an important one. We can, we can be the better version of ourselves when we let go of that critical self-talk. Right. Choosing, choosing which voice we want to support, which one we want to listen to, because sometimes it, it'll be there in the background, but we want to give um, the positive one more of a voice. So we're going to bookend it with the worst, but I think you can answer this one. What's the worst mm -hmm. investing advice you ever received? Hmm. 
Wow, that's a really tough one. I think um, some of the worst advice I've seen is to follow on every chance you get. Mm. And I think that's a really bad idea because you can end up following on, uh, chasing good money with bad and just sinking money into to a hole where that company is just not going not gonna to survive. So knowing when to cut bait, cut your losses, admit that that investment is lost is really important. I think you're right. Yeah, you got to know when to uh, stop the proverbial bleeding. Or don't even start it. <laughs> right. Well, well, when you have a thesis, right? Exactly. Exactly. You can control it. Indeed. Well, Claire, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for your time. I got so much value out of this and I'm sure other people will too. Thank you. Well, thank you. This was a real pleasure, Christopher. I appreciate your time as well. Thank you so much for listening. I would ask that you do one thing. If you can go to Tech Careers and Money News, you can sign up for our latest publication. In Tech Career and Money News, we're going to give you a weekly publication that gives you insight into tech careers and equity compensation. How do you trade your time and talent for equity? What are some of the skills that you need to understand? Millionaire mindset. How do you grow your portfolio as you're growing your career and the skills that you need to manage it? Go sign up today. And if you like Tech Careers and Money Talk, you're going to love Tech Careers and Money News. Thank you. Bye.